I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we help you navigate complex technologies and their impacts on society through analysis and critique. This is episode 32. So according to the International Monetary Fund, by GDP or gross domestic product, which is the market value of all goods and services from a nation in a given year, the U.S. is currently the largest economy. China is second, followed by Japan, Germany at number four, India at five, and then the U.K., France, Canada, Italy, and Brazil at number 10. What I find amazing is that if you combined the valuations of the so-called big five U.S. tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Meta, Google Alphabet, and Microsoft, if you combine them as a group, as if they were a country, those companies would rank as number three in the largest economy list, ahead of all the countries after the U.S. and China. The obvious success of those high-tech companies, as well as others in Silicon Valley, has cemented the myth of the power of entrepreneurship and free market economies, as well as the legends of revolutionary innovation coming from the garages of brilliant engineers and college dropouts in that specific region of California. But how true are the myths and legends of Silicon Valley? To help us answer that question, starting with this episode in a special two-part podcast series, we'll work our way through the book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, written by Margaret O'Mara. Okay, let's dive in. Margaret O'Mara is the Howard and Francis Keller Endowed Professor of History at the University of Washington. With a PhD in history from the University of Pennsylvania in 2002, O'Mara focuses especially on the growth and history of the high-tech industry and U.S. politics. Her book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, was published in 2019 and went on to be named a Best Book of 2019 by the Financial Times and by Publishers Weekly, and was also named one of the New York Magazine's Best Books on Silicon Valley. So before we get into the book, I want to note two, no, three attributes of the book that are important, I think, for this podcast. First, I was impressed by the quality of the writing. I'll share some examples later in the podcast, but I found the quality and style of her writing almost surprising in how good it was, considering you know, some of the other history books I've read. Second, coming in at a little under 500 pages, I'll be needing to break this book into two podcast episodes. Today is part one, and in episode 33, we'll finish up with part two. The third attribute I'll note right away is one of the reasons I chose this history of Silicon Valley over some others, and that's because I feel that O'Mara gets the balance of history right. The narrative, some say the myth of Silicon Valley, often emphasizes how Silicon Valley grew to global tech dominance under its own power of entrepreneurship and 
male genius garage inventors. While elements of that popular narrative are true, Omera also shows how Silicon Valley became successful also from significant contributions by state and federal government. So there's not just one element that contributed to the success of Silicon Valley, but a group of elements that all came together. Okay, so the book starts just after the end of World War II. So let's just kind of set the stage for the 1950s in the United States. Senator Joseph McCarthy in 1950 ran a witch hunt for communists in the U.S. government and was later discredited in 1954. Dwight Eisenhower replaced Harry Truman as president in 1952. And Rosa Parks sparked the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. Also in 1955, Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley topped the Billboard charts. And in 1955, also Disneyland opened in Anaheim, California. Now, at that time, Harvard University refused to accept women into their MBA program. And computers of that time period were hulking mainframes. In other words, at this time, in snapshot of U.S. history, there was no Silicon Valley. Palo Alto, California, was just a small railroad village surrounded by countryside for cattle ranchers and farmers between San Francisco and San Jose in what is known as the Santa Clara Valley. So, as I mentioned, Omera notes that there was not just one thing, but rather a perfect storm of events that started the valley's transformation. First, Palo Alto had Stanford University, though the Stanford of 1950 was far from the Stanford we know today. Unlike the elite universities on the East Coast, Stanford had a focus on educating working-class students. More importantly, it had been gifted thousands of acres of land that, according to the terms, Stanford could lease to others but could never sell. Second, the U.S. government set as a national priority investing in high-tech research as a result of Vannevar Bush's report to the president titled Science, the Endless Frontier from 1945. And we discussed, as an aside, Vannevar Bush and his report back in podcast episode 15. While historically the Northeast, centered on Harvard and MIT in Boston, had been the epicenter of military funding and high-tech research during World War II, after the war, the government started eyeing remote secluded areas out west for building nuclear and other classified research labs. The dean of the School of Engineering at Stanford and later its provost, Fred Terman, with the blessing of the Stanford president, essentially reorganized the entire university to focus on disciplines especially being funded by the government, such as physics, material science, and electrical engineering. And here I want to read a paragraph from Omera's book highlighting Fred Terman's important decision. Such license allowed Terman to not only build up basic research capacity, but also move his university into even more applied work, bringing together star faculty and lab resources into the new Stanford Electronics Laboratories. The facility quickly became one of the military's most important hubs of reconnaissance and radar R&D. At a moment when Americans lived in fear of missiles and bombs raining out of the sky, 
Stanford researchers made the signal jammers and wave tubes that kept that from happening. Humanities professors howled at the shifting of resources away from disciplines that didn't have much relevance in the Cold War research enterprise. Yet the strategy proved remarkably effective. Within a few years, Stanford became one of the largest recipients of federal research dollars and had vaulted up the ranks in prestige. So Terman began creating research parks on the university's thousands of acres and leasing the buildings out to startups doing this high-tech research. Soon, other established companies, such as Hewlett-Packard, GE, Kodak, and Sylvania, also moved there to be near this growing hub of engineering research. David Packard, the Packard and Hewlett-Packard, is quoted in the book, These people have come to Palo Alto for one reason and one reason only. They want to be close to Stanford University because it is a great source of ideas of the electronic industry and a source of well-trained engineers. One of those startups was run by a co-inventor of the transistor, William Shockley. Though brilliant, Shockley ran a toxic workplace. So eight of Shockley's employees, including Robert Noyce, Jay Last, Eugene Kleiner, and Gordon Moore, quit to form their own semiconductor company, thus earning themselves the nickname the Traitorious Eight. Those engineers enlisted the help of an East Coast financier named Arthur Rock, who then found an outside investor willing to fund their new startup. And with that, the company Fairchild Semiconductor was born. This is significant because later, Robert Noyce, Gordon Moore, and Andy Grove went on to found the company Intel, while Eugene Kleiner went on to found one of the Valley's most influential venture capital firms. But all of that became possible because, according to Omera, a mere three days after the Traitorious Eight officially incorporated their company, the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik satellite. And so, with the resulting space race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, money poured into the Valley Semiconductor startups. To give you an idea of just how significant this event was for the growth of Silicon Valley companies, says Amera, from the founding of Fairchild until man walked on the moon, nearly 90% of all chip-making firms in America were located in the Santa Clara Valley. Another significant event happened in 1968, when the FCC ruled that AT&T could not prevent third-party equipment from being used on their telecommunications lines. Deregulation in the telecommunications industry caused an explosion of new firms, such as Prodigy and CompuServe, offering timesharing and other digital communication technologies. Soon after the American moon landing in 1969, a research network called ARPANET went live. ARPANET, a child of the growing military-industrial complex, was a national network linking supercomputers and mainframes. Obviously, that ARPANET grew into what today we call the Internet, but that early network was important for Silicon Valley because it allowed for faster collaboration between Palo Alto, Boston, and Washington, D.C. A final key element priming the growth of Silicon Valley were what became known as venture capitalists, taking advantage of President Lyndon Johnson's Small Business Investment Act, 
which provided generous tax incentives and federal loan guarantees for small businesses and their investors. Firms providing investment and legal resources for engineering startups flourished. And with that here, I'll read a passage from the book. But while I do, I want to mention again how I appreciate the clarity and style of O'Mara's writing. Boston may have had MIT and Harvard and leading companies in the post-war electronics world, but it didn't have that cheap land and abundant infrastructure and local people willing to capitalize upon it to such an unfettered degree. New York and Philadelphia may have had the capital and the big electronics makers and some of the universities as well, but these places didn't have the relentless focus on nurturing startups. Nowhere else but the Valley had the entrepreneurial and opportunistic Stanford, the thrusting bulldozers and hustling law firms, and the young money men opening up shop along Sand Hill Road. Nowhere else had the people. The California gold rush had been over for a century, but the Golden State remained a destination for the adventurous young from elsewhere, arriving with little to lose and an appetite for reinvention. By 1970, all those elements were in place, and Palo Alto was ready for the next big transformation. And that started with trade journalist Don Hoffler, who needed a headline for the article he was writing for the industry paper Electronic News on the region's computer chip industry. At lunch one day with some sales managers who were joking about what people on the East Coast were calling the the Valley area, Don realized that that joke name was perfect for his article. And so Silicon Valley, USA, blazed across the cover of Electronic News on January 11th, 1971. And obviously the name stuck, and so after that, the region was never the same. Tracking Moore's Law, computer chips became faster and cheaper to produce, and chip makers regularly produced new versions with more powerful features. And engineers and tinkerers, who referred to themselves as hackers, used these chips as part of new circuits and systems. Some motivated by 1960s counterculture, some motivated by books written by philosophers and thinkers. Jacques Ellul's book, The Technological Society, warned against human freedom being transformed and taken over by the conformity of the machine. And Alvin Toffler's book, Future Shock, predicted the transformative power of technology to change society. Prototype devices emerge, pushing against the limits of networking with distant computers, interfacing between humans and the computers, and reducing the size of the computers. Ed Roberts, an engineer at startup Microinstrumentation and Telemetry Systems, or MITS, contracted to receive blemished Intel 8088 microprocessor chips, and soon the Altair computer kit, a desktop computer you built yourself from parts, flew off the shelves amidst a growing homebrew culture. Unlike today, where homebrew means brewing your own beer at home, back then homebrew meant assembling your own computers, radios, and other technical equipment at home. Two early members of Menlo Park's Homebrew Computer Club were the hackers Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Steve Wozniak desperately wanted an Altair computer kit, but he couldn't afford one. So he decided to build his own version and created 
what is now known as the Apple One computer. Wozniak's friend, Steve Jobs, convinced him that they should sell that computer as a fully assembled home computer, unlike the Altair kit that you had to build yourself. According to O'Mara, on April Fool's Day 1976, the two Steves and a third partner, Ron Wayne, started Apple Computer Company. Wozniak soon began working on the next version, the Apple II, while Jobs started making connections with business and marketing people to figure out how to scale up their business. By the time of the first annual West Coast Computer Fair in 1977, Apple Computer had a prominent booth, and the world was introduced to the salesmanship of Steve Jobs. Says O'Mara, Steve Jobs may not have built the Apple's motherboard, but he knew how to explain it in evocative language, a rare talent in the engineering world. Though these early computers were very popular, one thing they missed that we take for granted today is an ecosystem of software. The Apple II was first designed to come with the fully assembled computer, a terminal, a keyboard, and the basic programming language. And the Altair kit was just hardware. These early systems lacked the applications, word processors, spreadsheets, and other programs that allowed more than just hardcore hackers to use the computers. People started realizing that if you wanted to sell more computers, you needed more software. Two people in particular, one named Bill Gates and his friend Paul Allen, made a pitch to Ed Roberts at MITS. In exchange for all software royalties and office space, Bill and Paul would write BASIC for the Altair. Roberts agreed, and Microsoft was born. Now, I don't know if that's exactly a cliffhanger, but that brings us to the midway point of the book. We've seen how Palo Alto grew from a sleepy town into a mecca of entrepreneurial activity centered around semiconductors and computer systems, a time period from the end of World War II to the late 1970s. While I've just tried to hit the highlights, I've also tried to give you a taste of the book, especially O'Mara's writing style. Obviously, she has a lot more in the book that I haven't covered, but hopefully you're interested enough to grab a copy. Or at least be sure to tune in into the next podcast episode, where I think we'll see Silicon Valley really taking off. Until then, that's a wrap for part one of our deep dive into the code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America, written by Margaret O'Mara. This book is the second in our current series of deep dives, You can see the complete series list over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Kendall Giles, in case you want to check out what's coming over the next couple of months. You can also find there other writings and discussions, podcast episode transcripts, a link to the Pseudo Dragon newsletter, and more. In any case, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.